hello, uh, Royal York family. Um, welcome to Reflections in Jeremiah. I think this is the third, the third week we are looking at Jeremiah together. Um, we're going to be still in Jeremiah chapter 2 um, for this week, and, and we'll probably move on from there next week. But I want to focus in on Jeremiah 2 still, because Jeremiah 2 is this large chapter um, where God is speaking to Israel about um, basically Israel forsaking him. And, and so last week we looked at chapter 2, verse 5, and, and we basically saw um, the idea is that you become whatever you worship, whatever you devote yourself to, whatever you delight in, whatever you behold, you become like. And so God says you, you've, you've given yourself to worthlessness and now you become worthless. Right? So you devote yourself to sin, you'll become like your sin and your idols. And, and the other thing is true as well, that when you devote yourself to Christ, you'll become like Christ. When you behold Christ, when you treasure Christ, when you pursue Christ, you will then become like Christ. As we looked at where Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, in chapter 2, verses to 11 and 13, um, I would argue what we have here um, is really the true nature of sin. So in chapter 2, verse 5, we kind of saw the, the result of what sin does. In other words, you give your life to sin, you'll become like sin. Whereas here in, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, we see what sin really is, the real essence of it, the real nature of it. Now, this is a... Um, this is a famous passage in Jeremiah, um, and so many people are familiar with it, but, but I, I still want us to focus on it because I think it, it captures so well, as I've already stated, the, the nature of sin in the human heart. So let me, let me read for us verses 11 to 13. Now remember, context is God is confronting Israel for abandoning him for the worship of idols. And this is what he says in verses 11 to 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So God begins in verse 11 with a question. A question. He says, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? In other words, he, he's speaking to Israel. He's saying, listen, has any other pagan nation changed their god to another god even though all the gods they worship are no gods? And of course, the, the answer is no, 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 no pagan nation has changed their false god for another false god. And then in the rest of verse 11, we, we are given the shock, so to speak, that a pagan nation hasn't changed their false god for another false god, but Israel has. As he says, my people, but my people have changed their glory. Now, when, when, when 
God says here they've changed their glory. What's their glory? Their glory is God. Israel was nothing. Israel were slaves before God showed up. God took them to himself. God, God made them into a great nation. So, so they changed their glory. That is, they changed their God, as he says, for that which does not profit. So this is, this is the shock of verse 11. That these pagan nations haven't changed their false gods, but my people, who are called by my name, have changed their glory, the glory of God, for that which does not profit. And so then in verse 12, we have uh, God's cosmic summons um, to be disturbed at what Israel has done, right? Be appalled, O heavens. Be appalled, O heavens. At this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So Israel has done what the foreign nations haven't done. They haven't changed their false gods for another false god, but they've changed the living God for false gods. And so because of that, he's telling the heavens to be appalled at what has taken place. Now, in verse 13... Verse 13 gives greater clarity to why he's calling the heavens to be shocked. But, but really, verse 13, I think, is a further explanation of what Israel has done in verse 11. They've changed their glory for that which does not profit. And verse 13 further unpacks what that is. So he tells them in verse 12, Be shocked, O heavens, be appalled. Then he says this in verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, this verse, verse 13, I think reveals the true nature of sin. God says that Israel has committed two evils. Two evils that are connected, though. They, they are inseparable. So the first evil that God says they've committed is this. They have forsaken me. That is, they've deserted God. Now, notice how God defines himself in verse 13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. See, they've, they've forsaken the one. They've deserted the one who doesn't just have water, but is everlasting, satisfying, living water for their souls. They've forsaken that God. They've forsaken the fountain of living water. They've deserted him. That's the first evil. So what's the, the second evil? Well, in deserting God, they've sought to find water in inferior and broken things. That's, that's what it says, right? They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern, a cistern was a, a pit that was uh, hewn out at, into the limestone, and, and it would collect um, runoff water for people to drink in the ancient world. But notice what, what God says about their cisterns. They're broken, and they can't hold any water. In other words, Israel has given up drinking from the fountain of living water 
to try and satisfy their thirsts by broken cisterns that can't hold the water they need. These are the two evils, forsaking God, then trying to find something inferior to satisfy their thirst. I think this captures the true nature of sin. You see, all of life um, is the pursuit, in one sense, of looking for satisfaction. And sin is always looking for satisfaction in something other than God. Only true satisfaction can can come in God. That's why, for example, Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. See, the Apostle Paul picks up this imagery of Jeremiah where Israel's changed their glory. They changed their God for false gods, where he says in Romans 1, 22 to 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the true nature of sin. It is, it is forsaking God or exchanging the glory of God for a lesser, inferior reality. That's why the first and the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You can attempt to, to keep all the other commands do not covet, do not steal. But if you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you are not only committing the greatest sin, but you are, in a sense, living out the true nature of sin, forsaking the one who can truly satisfy you. You see, when we break the greatest command, we inevitably break the rest. For in breaking the first, we will look elsewhere for something to love, for something to be satisfied in. You see, what sin is, is forsaking a superior glory for an inferior glory, or a superior delight for an inferior delight. Isn't this Jesus' point when he speaks to the woman at the well? Right? He basically says to her, you've been drinking from the wrong well. You've been drinking from the, the well of sexual immorality that that cannot satisfy you have you you have more than one husband and the man you're currently with isn't your husband see you've been drinking from this well that cannot truly satisfy the deepest longings of your soul but the water the water that i can give you this will cause you to never thirst again if only you are willing to drink from the well that i can give you see, this is why C.S. Lewis said in that famous quote, the problem that God has with us is that, isn't that our desire, desires are too strong, but rather too weak. As he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making 
mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, when you find yourself gripped by sinful desire, the problem isn't that your desires are too strong in that moment, but rather they are too weak. You would rather have shallow, fleeting, instant gratification than eternal, satisfying pleasures in God. So the question I simply leave us with is this. At this moment, what kind of well are you drinking from? Broken cisterns that can't hold water nor satisfy? Or the fountain of living water who has an infinite source to quench your thirst with? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have forsaken you and have sought to find satisfaction and pleasure in worldly things, even good things that can become idols when we place them above you. And Lord, I pray that for each of us during this time, we would truly drink from the fountain of living water. You are the only one who can truly satisfy our deepest longings. And so, Lord, give us a deep desire, a zealousness, and a discipline to pursue you with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and to truly have you as our joy and delight. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, church, thanks for watching, and I look forward to looking at Jeremiah with you again next week. God bless.